Hello, and welcome to Faculty Feed with me, Dr. Jerry Rabelais, Associate Vice President for Health Science Center Faculty Development at the University of Louisville. With me are my co-hosts, Dr. Stacy Sainer, Director of HSC Faculty Development, and Dr. Laura Weingartner, Director of Research for Faculty Health Professions Education. Once a week, we're going to come together to use this podcast to bring faculty development content to feed your hunger and satisfy your appetite so you can magnify your impact as an educator, clinician, researcher, and academic leader. Well, welcome to Faculty Feed, and today we have two faculty members from the College of Business. Now, you might stop and say, well, wait a minute. Jerry, why did you bring Jose Fernandez and Zach Goldman into the Faculty Feed Health Science Center world, what could we possibly learn from two guys from the College of Business? Well, I'm going to tell you, you're going to want to sit through this one because they got some great lessons for you. So as educators, we all do some amount of teaching, whether it's in an online classroom or online smaller group environment, and we must be mindful of the learner's experience, and we must be learner-focused. Tune in today to hear about the design of a new, streamlined, standardized online learning experience in accounting, of all things, accounting, developed by our colleagues from the College of Business at UofL. This was part of their Leadership and Innovation in Academic Medicine team project. The lessons they learned, though, apply to all of us. So with that, I want to welcome to Faculty Feed in the studio today, Dr. Jose Fernandez and Dr. Zach Goldman. Dr. Fernandez is an associate professor and chair of the economics department at UofL, graduated from the University of Virginia, and he conducts research in crime, health, and labor economics. Zach Goldman is the director of online teaching and learning and the program director of the online MBA and associate professor of practice, management, and entrepreneurship. Guys, welcome to Faculty Feed. Thanks for having us here, Jerry. We're really excited to be here. Tell us about your decision to participate and sort of what Liam was like. You just graduated, right, in July. So what was that like for you guys? I'll go ahead and go first on that one. So I was uh, pulled in kicking and screaming because my wife was part of the original cohort. Oh, <laughs> Liam. yeah, that's right. Uh, and she's like, no, you have to do this. I did it. You have to do it. So, <laughs> so I went through it. But I'll tell you that there was something really unique about our, our particular team. You see, we all came in. I remember when Jeff Blond signed up, he was just a director at that point of the MSBA. And what has occurred over just the last year is quite amazing. So from our little group of five, we now have two chairs. It was three, but one of those chairs was promoted to associate dean and our other person, who was Jeff Guam, is now the interim dean of the College of Business. So to wow. say that this was on time and <laughs> ready for us is an understatement. We really needed these lessons at that moment, and it was great that it was that group of people that came together to do it. You guys were in the very first class from the College of Business that participated in the Liam course and just graduated. 13 members looks like they went on to leadership roles. Yeah, I think all five of us have either received promotions and or have advanced in different positions since we started or were uh, continuing in that trajectory. Uh, in the case of Dr. Guan, as Jose was mentioning, uh, now our interim dean, it's a significant jump. And I know for a fact he's using a lot of the lessons that he learned from Liam uh, in his first couple of months here on the job as interim dean. One of the biggest components of Liam and probably one of the things that a lot of teams Eh, say dislike, but 
you know, causes them you angst. You can say it. That dislike they, they is really there. They really dislike no. it. Um, but we <laughs> it's keep, hard. It is hard because it's work. I'll say it over and over again. Learning is hard work. The team projects are real world projects, something that probably needs to be done anyway. It's an opportunity for individuals to come together that may have never worked with each other before and to come up with a, a solution to an issue that really needs to be uh, taken care of at the university. And so the projects give the folks in that team the opportunity to practice some of those skills and get some real world application out of it. Something that we were really excited about when we started the Liam program, and for context, I should say, our project really was centered around the online learning space. We had just recently had uh, some initial success in our online MBA program. Uh, just before the pandemic started, we launched our online MBA uh, fall of 2019. Having never offered a fully online degree program in the College of Business up to that point, we had a lot of uh, learning curves, uh, a lot of uh, challenges to overcome. First year and a half, two years were pivotal. We learned a lot of lessons, and one of which was how we wanted to streamline and create uh, a learning platform using the tools that we have at the University of Louisville, primarily Blackboard, to make a class that mirrored and rivaled that of a seated experience. Uh, and make sure that the outcomes weren't compromised in comparison from the online to the seated. And so what we came to the Liam project wanting to do was to take a lot of the lessons that we'd learned from the online MBA and see if we could transfer them into our undergraduate curriculum, particularly, and we started with our accounting uh, program, uh, which was uh, at the time and still is uh, being chaired by Michael Wade, who was a member of our Liam team. Uh, and so we were able to work with the accounting program to take that template, that model from the online MBA and see how it transferred to the accounting undergraduate curriculum. One thing you have to understand about the project is that we are moving from what used to be a five-week module type of setup, so not your traditional class, into a 15-week semester. That's not an, an easy jump to make. Right. The other big difference that you have occurring here between the two programs is that in the graduate program, you, you do have your director as a little bit more of a taskmaster and saying, no, this is how you're going to do it. This is how it's going to be done. Uh, we're all going to be on the same boat and you're through. In the undergraduate program, though, this uh, idea of academic freedom <laughs> extends in so many different directions to think about not just the content that you put inside of your course, but the physical space of which you're going to be using to teach your course is something new for faculty to understand. They just think, oh, I'm going to my classroom, I'm going to teach this stuff I've always been teaching, and it's going to work the same way. But that's not true in the online space. When we talk about academic freedom, I think there's still some uncertainty around what that means exactly online uh, and what where the freedom ends and where it begins. And, and ultimately, I think we all want the same thing, which is to create a, an optimal student experience so that they're learning at a really high level, whether that be seated or in person. But I use the analogy oftentimes when contrasting seated and online environments is ask yourself this question as a student or as a learner. What was the last time or when was the last time that you walked into a classroom and you thought about the regulation height of a door? And you said, is that, is that regulation? And, and you took out a tape measure as you walked in the door and, and tried to measure that. And yeah. some of us, the listeners may be saying, well, I would never do that. Well, of course not, right? They're, they've been standardized. Some ways what the conversation at times can look like on academic freedom online is, well, I want to set it up this way. I want to structure it this way. Right. And while that's not a bad intention or a bad mindset, it's I think it's pretty natural as faculty members to do that. 
What we have to keep in mind is the, the end user, the student here. I know we talk about design thinking uh, quite a bit in Liam, but thinking about that end user, if he or she or they are going through this program of courses and every class looks different, Imagine just the, the learning curve itself to find materials, to find and access the information, let alone the content itself. The content itself is still challenging, right? Let's, right. let's not get me wrong. Taking econ, taking accounting, taking finance, these are our subject matters that people struggle with, and they're difficult to sometimes wrap their heads around. We still want them to, to grapple with that. But we don't want them to grapple with how to find it. Right? We, want them to, we want that process to be simple and straightforward and consistent. And that was kind of the, the framework for how we built the online MBA and, and what we try to transfer into the undergraduate accounting program. What you're describing is balance. It's a trade-off between the faculty members' academic freedom to be able to sort of design the environment the way they want and respect, really, for the learning environment, for the learner's experience, for it to be learner-focused. So you don't add additional challenge beyond understanding economics from Dr. Fernandez. To where, where was the PowerPoint again? And, and in the three courses related to this thing, it's at a different place in each one of them. And so it makes great sense. And I'm not surprised that we have it this way because I think in the balance of academic freedom and standardization and online, especially with the rapidity that people had to fall into this in March of 2020, I suspect it was like the wild, wild west because everybody was trying to do their very best and it just got set up in a bunch of different ways. Well, and I blame Steve Jobs, right? And okay. I, I mean, so well, let's go there. Jokingly, I say that because yeah. you know we are living in a, an iPhone era, a user experience era, where we want things to be easy, convenient. Yeah. I mean, I can't tell you how many things I can do within two clicks of my phone. Right. I can order a pizza. I can enroll in a class. I can do so many things that you just would never have imagined even five, 10 years ago. That's right. And that's the degree of simplicity now that users, our students are users of, of these technologies. Let's not try to separate them out altogether. Uh, these users expect that level of integration, that level of consistency, that level of simplicity, that level of design. And not all of us, most of us in fact, are not equipped with that kind of background, uh, myself included. Right. Never, never was trained in this era, but I had the opportunity, we have the great fortune of collaborating with people like our Delphi Center, mm -hmm. who are tremendous assets to the University of Louisville, because they do bring that background, they do bring that perspective into our classrooms, which makes a really big difference. Well, that is a great illustration of where our learners have come from. And, and I'm going to include learners not just as 19-year-olds. No, absolutely. But us, even 67-year-olds, have an expectation of what it's going to look like when you walk into that online space. And if it's enough trouble now when you go from Zoom to Blackboard, collaborate to Teams. To WebEx. Where it's all, the, yeah. all the buttons are there but they're kind of in different places. Transitioning from one meeting to the other, just with that, how do I screen share in Teams again? How do I screen share in Zoom? And so we can't control the inter-space variability of those, pro of those programs, but boy, within the world we control, your attempt to bring some standardization and consistency to the environment you create for our undergraduate students in this program, it was really, it was really great to, to see the need for that, and then to actually do it.
And we've used that word standardization a couple of times already in this conversation. And I think that sometimes can have a bad reputation. I, there, there are times in which standardization can be bad. Uh, I think personalized learning experiences, when you get into positions like the, the two of you have in the medical community, sometimes just saying everything's the same, that can lead to some really problematic outcomes. But some of the structures and the foundations, if you think about our interstate system, for example, if they were all different from state to state, imagine the challenges, imagine the, the right. complications that we That's would right. have. So standardization is not always bad. And I think when we talk about the foundations of an online learning environment, we need to recognize that some standardization is absolutely needed. How do you build the structure that's standardized that allows you to be individualized in the actual delivery of content? That's the hard tightrope that, that many times faculty and designers are finding themselves trying to walk. I don't believe we're in the information business. If we are, we're well behind. And what I mean by that is if our only role as educators is to provide and distribute information, if that's our only role, it's, it's core to what we do. But if that's our primary dr driven factor, I hate to tell you, our phones are much more efficient than going to a class, going somewhere. I can look up anything, anytime, anywhere, and our students know that, right? So our, our role as educators is not just about providing information. It's about providing transformation. Just searching something on Google is not going to change your life. You can find any fact you want on here. You can find any economic theory you want on YouTube and have somebody explain it to you in 12 minutes. The reality is that's not going to transform your life. If you know how to use it, if you understand it, if you can really apply it, that's transformative. That's not information. There was a medical example for this, and the, the safety initiatives of the past 10 to 20 years have driven some of the standardization. So you know that pilots, before they fly the plane, they've got a checklist. You know, are my tires inflated? Are the wings on? Do the lights work? Does the engine start? I mean, it's just like a checklist they got to go through. That drove the use of checklists in the operating room. Is this the right patient? Do I have the right x-rays up? Or am, am I on the right side of the patient for the operation? And on and on, because mistakes were made, not commonly, but mistakes were made when meticulous attention to that standardization wasn't done. And, and many physicians of 10 and 20 years ago rejected this whole notion, wait a minute, I'm a surgeon of 20 years, I know what side to operate on, I don't need to market ahead of time, and on and on. So our, even our health sciences faculty are familiar with this notion of the need for some amount of standardization because it impacts patient care. Because in, in the online accounting experience is about the learner experience, here is about the patient's experience and outcome that this helps to guarantee their safety and the outcome of, of whatever you're doing for them. So we are all subject to this notion of, you know, we probably ought to look at it from the perspective of who is using the service and quote unquote standardize that approach to them. So it's, you know what to expect and it's consistent. Instructional designers, you know, that help with this process, this design aspect are amazing at the uh, ability, you know, to take things like quality matters and making sure that the program is completely accessible to every learner, not just those that can perfectly see and perfectly hear the content. And so I know you guys have worked very hard to make sure that your program is meeting those standards. 
and uh, we do the same thing in our health professions education courses, but that doesn't apply to all the courses. It's just the ones that I have control over. The Liam team project for the College of Business took this whole notion of creating a more standardized, consistent, simple environment for this online uh, accounting course. And you guys actually studied whether that made a difference or not. Jose, can you tell us more about that? First, let's actually talk about what this system is. So right now, we've only been talking about it in an abstract way. Yeah. The key system here is that nothing should be more than three clicks away. Nothing. You should be able to get to your end destination in your Blackboard or your yeah. canvas of choice yeah. <laughs> um, in three clicks. And that's the important part here. So when you are thinking about your design, you want to be as easy as possible to get there. We will need to design this, but we wanted it to go up against an already existing course. Now, why would we want to do this? So just to throw back over to our folks over in the HSC, uh, I'm a health economist. There's lots of studies that look at pay for performance and they go like, why don't they work? All right, like, why, why is it not working? Most doctors try to do the very best for their patients regardless of the pay scale. And so they're already working to their maximum. Academics are thinking they're doing the same thing. They're thinking they're trying to produce the best course already. So they're already trying to innovate in their learning space. They're already trying to do these things. So we want to put them to the test. We say, we'll take your model against our model. If yours wins, yours wins. And we'll just make it completely scientific. I'm just going to set up the experiment and let the end user decide. That was the challenge. That was the thing that needed to happen. So the way we did it was we set up two shells. One was a shell that was actually used in the class. So this was a legit course, not one that was made up for the experiment. And then we taught that instructor to use the new shell. So the same instructor, not a different instructor, the same instructor use both shells. So that means the content's the same. That means that um, the intent, if you will, is the same. And then we put it up into a Qualtrics survey where a student came in, they were randomized into one of the two groups. And the neat thing about using Qualtrics is that we got to measure how many clicks it oh, took yeah. you to get through everything. Oh, okay. We knew how fast it took you to answer questions, and we gave them different types of tasks like, oh, when are the um, instructor's office hours? Uh, what is their email? Please write their name, because sometimes you'd be surprised about that. <laughs> um, what is the assignment that's due in the 10th week? All these different kind of time tasks for them to do. That was the objective part of it. Then we asked some subjective questions. We said, okay, well, how consistent is this template with the syllabus? Because again, the syllabus is another roadmap. It's a contract, it's there. Right. Uh, how easy was it to actually go through the system? Right, because we have the clicks, but maybe there's a different perspective that's there. So what were the results at the end? Well, lo and behold, it was a lot faster, about 17% faster. And was it faster, Jose, because of the three-click rule? Do you think that was what it was? Or was it where it was located in the shell? So that was a surprising thing. The number of click differences was not statistically significant. Okay. So that means that the instructor had a good idea in mind. It just wasn't set up in a way that was fast for the student. 
Well, and again, just to reiterate, this isn't a, an extremely novel concept, but it no. is it is somewhat novel to academics, right? Because if you look and take a kind of a broader view of this for a moment, you can see that something like a LinkedIn Learning or a Coursera or these other big platforms that have grown significantly, I mean, to the point where I believe uh, I was told yes, or a couple weeks ago uh, that Coursera's active users are somewhere north of 15 million a month. Uh, 15 million users who are actively using this platform and you think well why is that what draws them to a Coursera or a, a LinkedIn learning as opposed to a traditional university I think there's several reasons but one of them that I would propose is that they are a consistent streamlined standardized process that when you start a Coursera class you know what you're going to, to receive you know what's gonna come when you hit that play button when you start working on that course and so I think that's to the point of what we were talking about earlier. The user experience has changed, especially online, and we have to be recognizing what those trends are. There's a book I highly recommend. Uh, in fact, this week I was attending our AACSB accreditation conference, which is one of our larger accreditors for business schools. Okay. Uh, and in a room full of deans and associate deans of business schools across the really the globe, but especially the United States, there was a keynote speaker who recently published a book. Uh, it's called The Great Upheaval, The Past, Present, and Uncertain Future of Higher Education. And, and the keynote was uh, one of the authors, Scott Van Pelt. He was talking about really these four new realities that are facing all of us as educators in the HSC, in the business school, in the speed school, anywhere that you might be participating from. And just real quickly, those four realities, the proliferation of new distributors and providers, Coursera, LinkedIn, other people who are yep. providing educational resources uh, to the demand for any time on time uh, education uh, or any play any time any place education, mm -hmm. which is where online has seen its growth. The rise of just in time education that addresses specifically timely needs, something right. like the supply chain issues that occurred over the last two yep. years, just in time education that can help people address those things. And then a pivot from inputs to outcomes, which is the one that I think maybe the greatest uh, transformative force facing higher education right now. Inputs from outputs, meaning so oftentimes we've defined our programs by inputs, right? So credit hours is a great example of that. Right. You have to input this amount of credit hours in these programs to achieve the degrees that we offer. Uh, and, and certainly we've always implied or we've always inferred and hopefully we have measured the outcomes but that has always been the variable. The, the, the input has always been the fixed, right? We, we know right. for a fact that if you don't do these credit hours, you're not gonna finish this degree. The outputs are what is becoming more fixed now. Students are expecting, if I get this degree, I know this thing, this thing, this thing, whatever that might be for their field, and I think that's a, a really big shift now. And that's where you see things like competency-based education continuing to grow. That's where you see these really important outcomes being the, the driving force of education now, whereas previously input was where we were heavily uh, oriented around. A lot of first-round interviews are really just to find out do you understand the content. Ah. Before you even get into what the culture is of the firm or anything else like that, you need to show, demonstrate that you actually know how to do what you're doing. Uh, Google has a great example of an exam that they have for people to come in and, to, and actually see if they can pass it before they get a formal interview of any sort. Wow. Um, these are, are things that are going to continue. It's the space that micro-credentialing and certificates are trying to fill. They're basically trying to be the front end for these firms who don't want to pay for those modules. This process is going to continue. And I, I'm really curious, as an academic part of it, um, 
how much are students actually retaining from these online courses? Right. All right, because COVID has shown us that it's not as good as we <laughs> had hoped at all. And so uh, it, there's still going to be a lot of back and forth between this. There's still going to be a lot of interpretation coming from firms. How do they look at some of these certificates? How do they interpret some of these online degrees? Uh, one of my colleagues did a study on it and found that even when you look at Penn State versus Penn State World, there's a little bit of a ding when oh, that oh world my. is on the end of the resume. And so we'll see, what is the earth mean? moving underneath us or not? It was great that you brought up the whole output situation. So what's the objective? What are, what are our learners able to do as a result of this new learning? Let's take that to heart because we all know that a podcast is very passive in nature, but we want someone to learn from this experience. Zach, what would you challenge listeners to do next week? What I would challenge users to do, and especially those teaching in an online class or operating in any kind of online space, is to reach out and make a personalized gesture to one of your learners. And what I mean by that is the online space is convenient. We get that, we understand that. And most of us prioritize and appreciate convenience. But at the heart of that convenience can sometimes come at the expense of the personalization and that one-on-one that -on -one relationships that I would imagine if, if each of us went around the room, we don't have the time, but talked about why we got into higher education, we could point to some relationship, some person along the way that made an impact on us. Online cannot replace that relationship. It cannot replace those, those valuable transformative opportunities that come when people like ourselves connect with people like our learners in really powerful ways. Dr. Fernandez, how about you? What would you challenge our listeners to do next week? Learning is all about sucking at something new. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's what it's all about. So I challenge you to go out and try something new. Try something new, knowing full well you're gonna be terrible at it, but I want you to try it. I want you to give yourself grace, permission, to go in and do it. And I know that's tough. I know it's tough because we're used to being the leaders in the room, we're used to winning, we're used to being that person ahead, and I want to challenge you to be the student again. Gentlemen, it's been fantastic having you on today's episode of Faculty Feed. Hopefully we'll get to talk to you again soon. If you want to up your game as a professional educator or to enhance your leadership skills in the academic setting, this is the place to be, as together we strive to make UofL a great place to learn, a great place to work, and a great place to invest. Don't forget to check out the show notes for links and additional information from today's session, as well as our email address. Feel free to contact us at facfeed at louisville.edu. That's F-A-C-F-E-E-D at louisville.edu. Join us next time for more and come hungry.